You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Government Studies at the Brookings Institution. The prevalence of machine learning algorithms has increased over the years, making predictive decision-making tools part of our everyday lives. Today, it is harder to discern what decisions are made by humans and others that rely upon the cognition of machines. Most users are unaware of the widespread use of automated decision-making making them oblivious to the role that machines play. Equally concerning are when those decisions make determinations about one's eligibility for credit, housing, employment, healthcare, and educational opportunities. On this new episode of the Tech Tank podcast, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, my colleague, co-host, and the director of the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation, discusses a new chapter that is part of a forthcoming book entitled AI Governance Handbook. It offers various perspectives about the current state and future of the governance of AI and related technologies. The book is being published by the Oxford University Press and is currently available online before being placed into hard copy circulation. Dr. Turnley's chapter is called Mitigating Algorithmic Biases Through Incentive-Based Rating Systems and it explores how to improve upon informed consumer choice in the use of machine learning algorithms. Responding to the current debates about the trustworthiness and fairness of AI systems, Nicole starts with the premise that these systems are designed to mimic and amplify existing systems of inequalities, particularly since they are designed by people who may be unaware of how their own biases factor into the AI system development and execution. She also asserts that AI systems often leave the users without agency, making it harder for consumers to understand how they are or will be affected by their use and reliance upon certain technologies. So it is a terrific chapter filled with great insights, and I want to welcome my colleague and CTI director, Nicole Turner-Lee, to this podcast. Hey, Daryl, thanks for having me. What an interesting pair today, right? The two co-hosts. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's just jump right in. It's a great paper, as I mentioned. I definitely recommend it for people to read. So let's start with some level setting for our listeners. So what are machine learning algorithms and why should we care what happens with them? Well, thanks, Daryl, for putting that question out there. And this is particularly for our listeners that understand what we're talking about, but really don't understand what we're talking about. And in no way am I professing to be a scientist. I'm a sociologist by training. But when I define machine learning algorithms, I refer to them as these repetitive set of of actions, actions that are embedded into technological systems that have pretty much mastered our human cognition. So some examples might include you're sitting home on a Saturday night, like I often do, 
watching a movie and you're recommended a movie in the same genre that you've been watching for the last eight hours because you don't have anything to do on a Saturday night. What happens is that recommendation algorithm really has picked up on your online behaviors in such a way that it has a predictive capacity because you do it over and over and over again. You watch drama and drama and drama or love story, love story, and essentially it just picks up on that behavior and is able to render you a better result or optimize your particular behavioral traits. We as consumers are not necessarily aware that this is happening around us. I'm talking about in the entertainment sector, when we're purchasing goods and services online, and we get those recommendations for other similarly situated goods and services, when we're applying for jobs or we see certain jobs on online job search engines, we're wondering why do they know me very well? And I hate to say it, when you're looking for love, you might be on one of those dating sites looking for love and the algorithm itself has determined what your predictive capacities are, who you're looking for, and it delivers those types of results back to you. At the end of the day, we need to care about that because unlike our previous analog life, Daryl, we're now driven by these emerging technologies that have the capacity to go beyond our movie preferences or our love interests, but they actually make determinations on employment, healthcare decisions, educational decisions, as well as other decisions that have really grave consequences if we do not qualify or are eligible for them. So that example of movie recommendations actually sounds helpful. And I certainly have had the same experience that you have and have benefited from some of those recommendations. But you suggest there also could be problems with that as well as other kinds of AI applications. So where and why does algorithmic bias appear and at what stage of the technical development of the AI system? Well, this is an interesting question. I spent a lot of time in our work at Brookings thinking about this. I mean, first and foremost, a lot of biases appear because we don't have a digital universe that is representative of the diaspora of perspectives and people that are actually creating these tools. So oftentimes what we've seen in areas where we see algorithms go awry, it's usually due to a developer's misunderstanding, whether implicitly or explicitly, about the lived experiences of certain people. We see those examples time and time again. Just a couple of years ago, for example, we saw a healthcare algorithm that was looking for patients with chronic disease for qualification. That healthcare algorithm excluded Black patients, primarily because it used an input variable of how much people pay for hospitalization. Compared to the case of the misidentification and tagging of African-Americans as primates, this case that I'm talking about in terms of the rejection of Black patients into a chronic disease program had a lot to do with what, with what I call the historical trauma that goes into some of these data sets. Renee Cummings at UVA calls it data trauma. And what do I mean by that? We already know as a country that healthcare access is unequal. And so using how much people pay into hospitalization, particularly among populations that experience chronic disease due to where they live, the conditions of how they live, the pollution or environmental impacts of their community, automatically excludes the medically marginalized. And there are cases over and over again in criminal justice algorithms 
that again, move beyond who the developer is and move into the space of what training data are you relying upon to train these algorithms? When you start relying upon data that is systemically flawed, you then create bias. And then I would say, Daryl, there's this third type of bias, which has a lot to do with sort of these, um, what researchers consider to be these inferential biases. That is what Latanya Sweeney has argued that Black and Latina consumers that apply for online financial services, for example, tend to be denied or have higher interest rates simply because of the sounding of their name. If you're Shaquita or Jose or something similar in terms of ethnic sounding, her research correlates the fact that you will be offered higher interest rates. And what we're also seeing with regards to this inferential economy, that protected classes that under law have certain guidelines and guardrails, you just don't have that, right? Because going back to my example of a movie watcher, I become a person who watches these genres, who then does other things online, like purchase more memorabilia around movies, potentially more makeup because I want to look good when I'm watching the movie. Over time, the computer begins to identify me as an African-American woman who has the potential to be misidentified because of this composite profile. And so it becomes very difficult in these conversations for us as consumers to understand the on and off switch of how we're being profiled and how our data is being surveilled, Daryl, which again, I think is where we begin to see these biases appear, not just at the technical level, but later at the social and where they have sociological implications. Yeah, those certainly are disturbing examples of bias. So in your chapter, Nicole, you share several examples of where bias has consequential outcomes for people. Can you give us one or two examples so that we can better understand the impact of AI biases? When I talk about these examples previously in terms of who's creating the AI, what historical data and cases, the subjects of the AI, and then the third piece, what inferences are being relied upon. These things combined or taken apart have consequential impacts. What I mean by that is, what is it like to be someone who applies for an online mortgage and you're denied simply because the algorithm rests upon, as our colleague Aaron Klein has researched, whether or not you're applying on a PC or a Macintosh, in suggesting that if you have a Macintosh, you have more money and better credit. What does it mean to have those opportunities foreclosed on you if you're in the criminal justice system and the algorithm that judges are relying upon are really looking at past criminal behavior historically and over-incarcerating or denying bail or pro providing higher sentences to Black and Brown applicants. And I write about this in the paper. How does it feel to be in a store like a Black man in Detroit and be misidentified through a grainy surveillance image and the police officers who rely upon facial recognition technologies detain you for six hours? For us as researchers and policymakers, Yes, there is some technical cadence, and I argue all the time with my engineering friends. Well, you know, the technology is only spitting out the best of variables because this is what the landscape looks like. So maybe people are being incarcerated, but they're being incarcerated at a lower rate. But then my argument is, but they should have been incarcerated at the rate that they are because historically we have a criminal justice system that is racist and targeted. My point is, when we have these consequences occur with these online machine learning models, 
there's no mitigation or no course for consumers to actually even know that this is happening to them. And two, to be be able to come back and say, hey, stop doing this to me, right? In 2016, when foreign operatives use algorithms to manipulate the voters and really engage in voter suppression, this was not a protected Supreme Court case law, right? This is just people trying to figure out what happened to them without the right knowledge or information around how the sausage is being made. So one of the novel ideas that you share in your chapter is information about rating systems as a way to help consumers. Can you share more about what those rating systems are and how they can help consumers? Yeah, so this is interesting. So people have heard me talk about this for like two years. It's finally out. It's in the book. And let me share the story that kind of got me here. So my dishwasher broke about three years ago. And I found myself in a big box store looking for a dishwasher. Of course, I went online. I read all the reviews. I knew which products I actually wanted to go look at when I went to the store, you know, what I wanted to touch because I'm a very tactile person. And on the dishwasher was this big yellow sticker that before I probably never paid as much attention to, but as a consumer, as many of you all are, I sort of want to match and connect the dots between what consumers are saying online and what the product efficacy is as I was researching and figuring out what dishwasher to buy. We are all familiar with this. It's called the U.S. Energy Star Rating. (laughs) It's that big yellow sticker that basically has this very obnoxious print that is screaming at the consumer that this has gone through some strict scrutiny to ensure that it's going to do what it says it's going to do whether that's in water input or durability, the standards have basically been defined. And I went after buying my dishwasher, eventually I did get a dishwasher. I went to the internet to see what is this Energy Star ratings. And if you read through it, you find out that this is a U.S. governance program that examines both standards, user expectations, performance of certain consumer appliances. And what it does, it brings clarity to the consumer on both the operational cadence of the consumer appliance you're going to buy and the performance output. And where possible, it provides product disclosures and the standards, the policies. Just recently, I don't know about you, I've seen a lot of product disclosures with regards to California and some of their stringent requirements about plastics that could potentially cause cancer. I share that because at a time, as we just spoke about, where people are heavily reliant upon the technological ecosystem to get things done, we have nothing like this. Years ago, I was speaking to a friend of mine, Jeannie Barton. We were doing a project together. She used to work at the Better Business Bureau. And we used to say there was no better housekeeping seal, right, for these things. Like you just use these thinking that operationally, it's going to give you the right movie. It's going to recommend the right product or service. It's going to make sure you're not discriminated against. But in an encased environment where millions of algorithms are at play at all times, we don't have that type of disclosure. So the Energy Star Rating Program is a partnership with the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Energy, and a variety of utility, energy, state, and local organizations and consumer organizations that actually guide and govern this process. And so, Daryl, that just had me thinking, like, we don't have anything like this, right? We don't know, as many people have made the example, like when you go into the bank and you give the teller money, that it's going into the vault. 
We have no idea whether or not uh, these models are going through the same type of rigor before they get to the consumer. And most importantly, we as consumers don't have an input-output flow and a, a way to provide our own input, our own agency over whether or not these models are doing what they say operationally um, or sociologically. So that's where the idea came from. They say good ideas happen on the back of a napkin. Mine happened with the visibility of a yellow sticker (laughs) that has gotten me here. But that's where I really got to this model of how can we disclose and have some type of participatory process Not enforceable, but a process like this Energy Star rating, which I think is a much more collaborative industry process that allows people to have much more informed choice. What is interesting to hear how you came up with that idea, and Nicole, I love those Energy Star ratings. I find they're very helpful when I'm choosing consumer products, but how do rating systems incentivize developers and the companies that license algorithms to do a better job? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? When you are in the business of, one, an overcrowded marketplace, there are tons of consumer appliances. There are probably fewer monopolies. There used to be, when you and I were growing up, you remember, the whirlpools of consumer appliances. Now you have a variety of companies actually engaging in the space. I think it brings some type of reputational relief to consumers, that they're able to see that these developers are adhering to some level of governance and standards and user expectation. So I think that's the first thing. I think companies don't want to land up on the front page around their product or service. And so this gives an extra check and balance. It allows these companies to better understand their marketplace and better evolve in that marketplace because of those transparent documents, as well as disclosures for consumers. I think for companies right now, the problem that we're seeing in the algorithmic space is what I call permissionless forgiveness. We know that we're in a space, as Adam Thierer has said at Mercatus, that permissionless innovation, where products and services are being invented at every moment and innovated. And the new digital ecosystem has moved away from an analog vision of the world to one that is very much driven by bits and bytes and then some. And these correlations of variables lend itself to, like I said, a very packed inferential economy where we don't even have to identify ourselves. And so for companies to distinguish their operational cadence and their performance optimization of their algorithms, to me, is a viable next step for the marketplace. I think it's better for business overall. And I also think, again, it averts any type of disastrous consequence. I mean, imagine that healthcare company, right? When they found out that they were kicking out Black patients, they were actually on the first page of the New York Times, I believe is when I read it, what kind of reputational risk that actually accrues to that company. Whereas if you have some standards and you're able to alleviate some of the consumer concerns, I think it's just better for business overall. And I think it's better for consumers to know what they're engaging in. I'm not suggesting in this paper, for example, that this is something that should be placed on every algorithmic model. I don't want to hear Netflix or any streaming company say after I finish my dump of my dramas, right, and I'm in this melodramatic mood, hey, we certify that you are drama queen when it comes to what you watch. I'm talking about algorithms that have high-risk consequence, employment algorithms, financial service algorithms, criminal justice algorithms. Are these models that have some 
level of rigor that we know that they're not going to generate in some type of predatory outcome. So we started our conversation by discussing this problem of online biases. How would consumer rating systems serve as a possible model for mitigating those types of biases? And how would we operationalize these types of systems? Yeah, that's the next paper, Darrell. I'm still working on this practice, this model here. I think when we think about these models, one of the things I'm trying to suggest is that this is just a ramp, right? This is a way to sort of certify algorithms outside of the process that the National Institute for Standards, NIST, does for the U.S. government. When that model comes out of the NIST framework and it goes into the marketplace and it's contextualized, I think we should have some conversations on usability. And that's why I propose the Energy Star rating. So I think that there has to be some usability standards that occur, and we see that again when the algorithm comes out of the rigorous testing at a federal agency like NIST. I think for companies, there are very few ways for them to engage consumers or to get feedback on their models. And this is where I think there is this opportunity to take the Energy Star rating to the next level, which is to do some due diligence checks on how is this algorithm performing? What feedback as a consumer do you have? When I started putting this model together and I started thinking of the use of the word rating system, some of my peers who were talking to me about this model, because I did some research prior to putting this paper together, I did talk to about seven to 10 companies around how they actually exercise fairness and responsibility and inclusivity in their algorithm development. What was concerning is that consumers don't have a way to say, that's not me. And so we're seeing some of that with ad transparency movements. Companies like Meta have these tools now that say, do you want to see this? But that's still a very passive engagement of the consumer. So what I'm suggesting, Daryl, is we are seeing now in the space that I'm working on algorithmic bias, a movement towards human and civil rights audits, which I think are completely in line. But we can go a step before that and basically do what I think are gauging consumers on the operational cadence and the performance optimization of those models in between. So that when we have these challenges of primate misidentification, healthcare denial, more longer sentences for defendants, that we're able to catch that up front and give some agency when it comes to informed choice. Let me push it a little further. I also think in line with these rating systems, you've got the Energy Star rating stamp of approval that shows that this has gone through some type of rigor, secondary, tertiary testing, standards, user expectation, training, modeling, boom. You've got this input mechanism for consumer feedback so that people can continuously give you feedback on the performance of that model. And then I think third, If that model does not perform to the standards, let's say in facial recognition, where it has a hard time identifying women of color like myself who have darker skin without the proper lighting or the proper positioning of the camera, I think the third piece of this is disclosure. Then you need to let consumers know. What I've been trying to do, Daryl, with you and others is to get beyond the normative uh, conversation that bias is here. We already know that (laughs) bias has become very normative. And what we're really trying to do, what I tried to do in this paper is to push people into a more pragmatic role, which is to say, what do we do about it? What do we do about it that 
is technically astute, but also brings consumers in. And that to me is something we've not done yet, which I think becomes much more sensible in an environment where people are always engaging and participating in some way or form in their own algorithms, right? My algorithm is my algorithm. (laughs) What you do online, I don't get the same delivery of results. And I think that's where having some type of rating system, incentive-based system pushes companies to just do much better to mitigate these types of risk. So who do you think should be in charge of the ratings and how would any possible transgressions be handled? Would there be penalties? And if so, who would enforce them? Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, or some other agency? Right now, what we're seeing at the Federal Trade Commission is we are seeing some level of jurisdictional authority when we see these types of grievances. It's been hard for the FTC to actually identify and enforce many of these because of the technical complexities. But if you've watched their recent hires and some of the reconfiguring of the FTC, I think we're going to see more algorithmic policing than we've ever seen before. I would like to see, in all honesty, NIST or some federal agency like NIST take some responsibility for providing a seal of approval in terms of the usability of these models before they hit market. Right now, NIST more so collaborates with industry on certain models and sets the level floor, but I think they could play a role in putting out the technical cadence that is expected in some of these more high-risk algorithms and making their stamp of approval going forward. I do think going in, in terms of like who owns this, I believe that companies should develop these accountability structures, advisory councils. We've seen this in advertising with the International Advertising Bureau. We're seeing it in other industries, manufacturing, where companies that are like-minded do come together to have discussions around governance, standards, user expectations, and performance. It's beyond time that we've not seen this type of convening among tech companies who are taking on these greater roles that are above the line when it comes to user expectation and eligibility. So I think that there's something there. What I'd like to see us do, and we're a lot different than the European Union, who has put in place very prescriptive laws when it comes to accountability and algorithmic bias. I mean, EU, I think, has done a great job of defining what they consider to be high-risk and low-risk algorithms, but it does come along with a lot of enforcement, right, and a lot of expectations in terms of what the penalties are for those companies that break the law in real time or hypothetically. I'm not sure if we want to go that route because obviously the innovative space, permissionless innovation, allows us to get better and better with regards to what we do technically. But I do think it's high time for us to take some of these high-risk use cases and really interrogate them to determine that we have the right standards of development that go into them and that we create these participatory models among consumers to allow companies to do a check-in. So at this point, I'm not necessarily suggesting that these are penalties by law. In my other work, I am looking at the agility of the civil rights regime to be Uh, flexible enough to give some guidance and guardrails of protections for consumers. I think that's a conversation that we need to continue to have. And we know the White House has recently put forth an AI Bill of Rights, which would embolden some type of governmental action when it comes to the expectations consumers have around their technical models. My challenge with enforcement is that we don't have enough knowledge 
on the part of the inside federal government to know how to govern and to appropriately assess these models. And again, we could be like the EU and just provide broad sweeping penalties around enforcement. I just read today about an enforcement among a tech company based on the violation of children's uh, privacy. But I think that in the end, we need some type of co-evolutionary model that allows us to really come to some technical standard uniformity so that we're operating off of the same sheet of music. So you also raised some other questions that we should be asking ourselves, and one of them is workplace diversity. So how does workplace diversity help mitigate some of the biases that we've been discussing? As these models become much more widespread and much more generally purposed, right, Daryl, it's important that the developers resemble or speak to the regular everyday experiences of people. Unfortunately, right now, we have an imbalance when it comes to tech diversity at some of the largest companies that are developing or relying upon these models. We've already had a shortage of students of color, for example, in the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math occupations. And that's not necessarily translating into this new proliferation of data science where much of this work is being done. We have voids when it comes to interdisciplinary perspectives. As a sociologist, I'm often the only person in the room. I'm hearing more and more, and I'm excited about more sociologists taking on the sociotechnical academic perspective, but we need more of that in our boardrooms and at our development tables in these companies. And we possibly need to train our computer and data scientists around the ethical implications of the models in which they're building. My point is, without that diversity, you make these mistakes. And those mistakes feed into the reputational risk that we spoke about earlier. There are some companies that are starting to move in that direction. And I am finding, because I get a lot of those LinkedIn requests and calls, that there are new hires in the area of fairness and responsible AI at startups that are trying to get this right because they don't have the resources to be on the front page of the newspaper. I mean, at the end of the day, As these become part of our everyday experiences, they have to resemble us. And that us means that they cannot be so sophisticatedly complex that we dismiss that there may be these challenges that result from the predictive capacities that we implicitly or explicitly buy into or ignore. So how does one distinguish between the differential treatment of subjects the disparate impact of certain populations based on how they were treated or felt. Yeah, and that that ties really to this workplace question, right? When I talk about the movie example, I don't think I'm going to experience disparate treatment unless companies do not invest in original programming that looks like me or mirrors my experience as a Black woman. But when you begin to delve into those high-risk categories of financial services, education, employment, healthcare, here's where it gets really tricky. Years ago, Amazon, for example, developed an algorithm to help them in the hiring of female engineers. Going back to the training data, it trained the algorithm that was going to help search through the resumes on the hiring information of 10 years prior. 10 years prior, they primarily place men. As a result of training the data to look for similarly situated candidates, it kicked out every 
female application that either had a female name or some type of women's group or women's college or extracurricular. It just did not see them because the algorithm was not trained to be inclusive of a female population. At that time, Amazon exercised permissionless forgiveness, apologized and pulled the algorithm off market. But could you imagine if it had remained the fact that we would have seen disparate treatment and impact among women candidates who Again, if it had not been known that this algorithm was doing that, they would have been experiencing what we consider to be discriminatory treatment under the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We're seeing cases like that, Daryl, now where people see differential treatment. And I can go on and on. I talk a lot about them in the paper, but they don't understand disparate impact. And disparate impact is the extent to which someone suffers a consequential harm that has some compensatory or uh, longer-term impact on their well-being. There was another case that I'll share here because I got to go through it myself, was when the COVID pandemic hit, the International Baccalaureate Program, which certifies high school students on some high standards when it comes to inquiry skills and more college preparedness, they basically provide within any normal time a test where students have to come in and they basically take the test much like they would any kind of standardized test to show competency. Well, because of the pandemic and students not being in school, they were unable to take the test in person. And so the IB at the time relied upon an algorithm to determine the likelihood that someone should be awarded an IB diploma, which again has consequences, good and bad, because those students who get the full IB diploma, in some cases they get financial aid, they get scholarships, they get um, guaranteed admission to certain colleges and universities. Well, I was watching that story and I happened to be interviewed by a news media on that. And my son was in the IB program that year and he had to go through the algorithm that was determining qualification for the full diploma. And what we found is that the algorithm was designed to take in consideration variables about your school. How many people previously received an IB diploma? What's the average GPA among your school? How high performing are the students? Well, Daryl, when you input those variables, what do you think happens? Kids from lower income IB certified schools were denied the diploma, partly because they did not have a track record of IB graduates because in low performing IB schools where you have 20 to 25 kids per year going through diploma, the algorithm itself picked up that that wasn't a school that was going to have a higher likelihood of graduates. My son even went through this. He missed his diploma by two points because of the model. And we basically had to go back and he resubmitted material to the IB agency, which is internationally based, and he ultimately got his diploma. My point, though, is there were several students across the country that lost a guaranteed college admission, financial aid, and it put the IB Academy in the position of rectifying what was potentially looking like disparate impact. We have to be careful that these algorithms that we have that are, again, going back to what I'm suggesting, not necessarily certified in these high-risk areas, do not foreclose on economic, social opportunities for people. 
the hardest thing that an algorithm can do to an individual that is using these models, not knowing that they're making these determinations, is to lose a job, lose health care, or not even have the opportunity to apply or gain access. And we're seeing this, Daryl, in this IB model, in employment AI right now that uses video screening just for pre-application that is able to look at applicants to determine whether or not they're suitable for a job. Research is telling us that Black and Hispanic men are being denied opportunities because they don't often exhibit, again, the input data, great eye contact, smiling, things that are prescribed and inputted into that model. So we have to be careful. And right now, unfortunately, we don't have good litmus tests. Agencies like the EEOC have put out what's called guidance on algorithmic bias in employment and among people with disabilities. And I'm really excited about their stuff. But we don't have that same Bill of Rights mentality among other federal agencies that can protect vulnerable and underrepresented groups. So those are all uh, terrific uh, points. I'm glad you uh, brought those out. How does a consumer engagement strategy better support the identification and mitigation of online biases? I'm starting to feel, Daryl, as we're talking like a preacher (laughs) because I live, eat, and breathe these things, right? I mean, listen, everything that I've spoken about now, there are in many respects technical or structural fixes. But at the end of the day, we have to center humans in this process. Humans know best when it comes to how these models feel for them. And I talk about that in the chapter, not only questions we should be asking ourselves on the technical side when we're developing these models, but questions we should be asking consumers to provide them with more informed choice. And what that looks like is this. If I have facial recognition embedded in a consumer product and it doesn't work on me, tell me (laughs) and let me tell you that I'm struggling with the efficacy of this technology. Having consumers in the mix matters. And there's several ways to do it. And this is some of the policymaking ideas and recommendations that my colleagues and I have put forth. I mean, one is to rely upon the regulatory sandbox. Are there instances where we want to bring consumers into the mix, provide some protective guardrails for them, for policymakers, so we make sure we're definitely de-biasing these models? We saw this regulatory sandbox used in fintech, where we were able to engage in a very participatory framework, consumers and agencies and financial services to ensure that we were not creating predatory financial service um, networks. But we don't see this in AI when it comes to things like healthcare, education, criminal justice. So a better consumer engagement strategy is really creating these regulatory sandboxes where you bring people in. For the marketplace, people who don't necessarily have the bandwidth to go through the policymaking channel, I think it's important, and I've said this to several industry partners, listen, you need to come up with ways to poll people, create panels. As a researcher and a PhD, Daryl, you and I were subjected to the IRB, where you have to do some level of vetting of human subject research. There's no official IRB status in terms of what are the disclosure statements to human subjects? What are you trying to actually gather in terms of the type of research or input? 
we should see some type of strategy like a review board that happens for tech companies that are developing algorithms or testing their efficacy. I also think that consumers, again, should have a feedback loop. You should want, even if it's a sample of consumers, to let you know how you're performing. If those consumers are saying to you, hey, listen, I keep getting all these higher interest credit cards based on something that I opened. I need that to stop. How do I recalibrate that? You as a company have a responsibility to hear your consumers because at the end of the day, it takes decades to build reputations and it takes seconds to take them down. And that's somewhat what we're seeing when we see these front page stories of reputational disaster that happens among companies who get these things wrong. I was talking to someone recently and they said, well, what kind of consumer? Should it be my grandmother or should it be a a Brookings expert? I think it's all of the above, right? I think there has to be some level of algorithmic literacy that comes amongst consumers to know how the sausage is being made. And at the same time, there should be some type of consumer engagement so that people can better supply lived variables to improve upon these models. So my last question for you is when you think about the technological environment, will things change for the better or worse on these kinds of questions? Woo! This is like that twilight zone question, Daryl. Listen, I always pose it this question when people ask me about technological advancement and where we're headed as two sides of a coin. There is this optimistic space where we're seeing the use of emerging technologies like AI help us with vaccination development, climate change, other really smart systems that allow for us to have better well-being and just more sustainable environments and community. And those are the AI developments that we need to continue to celebrate and we need to continue to explore. On the other side of the coin are potentially these pernicious AI uses. And outside of the national security angle where we see AI used as weapons of warfare, I think there's AI on the domestic front that's being used to continue in even greater precision the exclusion of certain populations from social and economic opportunities. As I've mentioned, economic opportunities like applying for mortgages and loans, educational opportunities, employment, et cetera. I really believe that without some level of accountability, these systems can become worse. First and foremost, it starts with a much more uniform and agile privacy regime here in the United States to define what's on and off limits, which I think will create a better development environment for developers who are essentially just grazing the entire garden, pulling up even the weeds (laughs) and putting them in these models. But I also think that these will become worse if we allow technology to surpass and co-op the existing challenges that we experience as a society. Your book leans into existing polarization. Well, guess what? Computers do too. It's unfortunate that when I was growing up and watching the Jetsons, I thought that George Jetson lived in a world of autonomy. Well, in a society like today, that's just not there. Again, based on the imbalances that we have in workplace representation, but also the need for speed to expedite decision-making that may or may not have a positive outcome. So I think it's just important for us going forward to maybe not make this a conversation around the pernicious nature of these algorithms, but to think about what I propose in this chapter. How do we prove upon accountability? 
what pragmatic strategies can we actually deploy that make sense in the world in which we live? How do we move from models that are developed in labs and really participatory models that apply to people in ways that we never imagined because the context of people are different? And how do we, in many respects, take these very personal algorithms and ensure that we have the right user expectations of how they're going to interact with them? And when they're wrong, how do we tell people that they're wrong? I in no way am a computer scientist. I'm an everyday person who's entrenched in the space, just like everybody listening to this conversation. But I do think we're moving into a space that when we engage these products and services, we just want to know more. And that takes the transparency conversation a little further, what I wanted to do in this article. And I think it asks different questions that we need to be posing to ourselves and to these companies that are developing these products. Well, Nicole, thank you very much for joining Tech Tank, where we take big bits and tech policy conversations and make them into palatable bites. You've written a terrific paper for the Oxford University Press book. I recommend it to you all who are interested in these questions of AI biases and governance. Both Nicole and I write regularly about tech policy issues, and you can find our work at brookings.edu. We appreciate you tuning in and hope you have a great day. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. we